All right, welcome. Good morning. You are here at the Boone Center for the Family lecture this morning on recovering togetherness and relationships. I'm Kelly Hare, and I direct the Boone Center. Curious to show of hands, who's familiar with the Boone Center for the Family on campus? Okay, many, but not all. Uh, Boone Center for the Family is a relationship education, training and resource center, and we serve the Pepperdine community and the church across the nation in various ways, offering trainings and resources to help people live out healthy relationships, integrating both psychology and theology. So today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Dan Zink. He is a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary in the Masters of Counseling program. And I had the joy of having him as a professor myself back in the day, 2006, 7, 8, around those years. And he, along with his team, helped me think biblically about counseling in ways that absolutely changed me personally and professionally and that I'm just so grateful for. To really be able to take what does God have to say in his word, the Christian biblical narrative, and apply it to counseling. Also significant, Dan Zink and his colleagues helped me learn how to join people and be with people in painful places. And I'm so thankful for that experience. So join me in welcoming Dan Zink today. Thank you, Kelly. When I started teaching 27 years ago, I think it is, um, I had no idea that one of the greatest benefits of teaching, particularly at a seminary, a counseling program, but in, uh, at a seminary, is that there would be relationships with certain students that would continue. I had no idea. Um, and Kelly's one of those people. Um, if you're in a position where you are able to you know, chase her down and develop a relationship um, with her, you should do that. It would be good for you. It's been good for me. Um, and uh, so just that little, that little tip. Um, yeah, there are puppies. That's Teddy and Rosie. Recovering togetherness in relationship. Here's my introduction. Um, I've been on a journey for a long time thinking about relationships and where they're important. It studied out, started out, uh, and that journey's not done, as far as I know. Um, and there have been many contributors to that. My family uh, that I grew up in, teachers, friends, coaches, writers, my wife, my daughters, new friends, songwriters, so that surprised me a little bit, a spiritual director, students, professors, and there are others. Um, but there are many surprising contributors. One of them is horses, and I'll talk about that a little bit. I had to put that in there because it's the only thing that's going to make sense. That horses have actually helped me understand relationships, um, actually jump-started me into a, uh, a whole other level. Uh, friends who betrayed. God uses everything. Uh, puppies. Fictional characters. One of those is Harry Bosch. Anybody know who Harry Bosch is? L.A. Homicide. We can talk later. Yeah. <laughs> All right. L.A. Homicide prof uh, a Detective. Um, where was I? Got wrapped up. Now, the persistence of God, our good father. Yeah, I said that was a surprise. Um, birds, writers with unique views. I mean, I read some crazy stuff. Uh, that I didn't think I would, would do. The story began with seeing the usefulness of connected relationships in my work with people. So a long time ago, when I first started teaching counseling, one of the things I would say is the relationship is the vehicle of change. The relationship is your tool when you work with people. Um, I didn't really know why that was true. I think I had been taught that in the social work years uh, by professors and my clients. Um, but it continued to expand and include the importance of relationships and living life. 
And then in the last decade or so, seeing how relationality um, is an ordered structure for the entire cosmos. Maybe we'll make sense of that as we go. So here's my outline. We're going to define togetherness. Togetherness is essential. Togetherness is hard. Togetherness is renewable. Uh, by the way, when um, I hit any point that something's confusing or you want to ask a question, just feel free. I don't even care if you raise your hand. Um, but, uh, you know, ask your questions because I know I will be saying a few things that are different, maybe even alarming, or I, I can confuse people. Uh, and we just have to kind of work with that together. So togetherness, I mean, we all know what togetherness is, but I'm talking about something special, a special relationship where there's a reciprocal connection, um, where we're deeply engaged. And I, put, I took all the commas out of this on purpose, attuned, focused, attention-driven by curiosity. Could be said better, but it would have all those words. And it's open-hearted and people being accessible. Huh? Deep, sustained, and repaired as needed. Because togetherness is life-giving. Togetherness is essential. Bill Barnes is an uh, orthopedic surgeon in Atlantic, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, he's also a cattle rancher. And uh, there was on Vimeo, that one of those websites you can go to, a one-minute portrait. There was a series of one-minute portraits. And Bill Barnes did a one-minute portrait where he uh, spoke for about 45 seconds. And one of the things he says with this, the number one thing that motivates a horse to be with you is peace. And it's like that with people, too. Somebody gave me that video, told me the link for it, after um, we had, my wife and I had acquired horses about seven years ago, two. And uh, I, because of our experience with them, I started talking about them a lot in class. And our experience was that we um, adopted a horse, one horse, her name's Missy, Charming Miss. Um, adopted her from a thoroughbred horse rescue in Illinois. Um, and we chose her because she was so mild. And we don't know anything about horses. So we knew we needed somebody, a horse that was, you know, not going to act out, totally safe, all of that. And uh, so Missy came to our house, and it didn't take very long that we found out that what we were seeing was the squashed personality that can happen in a rescue. Because that girl is alpha. Um, and she started acting out in all kinds of ways, and we were able to connect up with a horse whisperer type trainer who came out to our house three or four times, taught us about horses, that unique perspective on horses. Rather than dominating the animal, make them submit and make them obey, what the horse whisperer is doing is, according to the, their nature, is relating to them in order to help them know they're safe. See, a horse um, is prey. There are predators that take down horses. They don't have to be as big as a horse to take them down. We have coyotes in our area, uh, believe it or not, not too far from St. Louis, and we have to keep our eyes on the coyotes. Um, but we don't have to do that too much because God has designed them in such a way that they can protect themselves. They are constantly on alert whether they need to be on alert. Every movement, they will posture. And, you know, if something moving out there, they will posture. If it, particularly if it moves like prey. 
um, or the predators, excuse me. So the first thing that Scott the Horse Whisperer um, taught us was that. And every time you walk into the barn, even though these horses have great memory, they love you, it's amazing the re relationship you can have with these animals. They're incredibly empath empathic, amazingly more uh, empathic than humans. But every time you walk in the barn, my, life, my wife likes to say, it's a new horse. They're questioning, am I safe with you? Are you here for me? Are you for me? They're questioning. And you have to answer that question. Because that's the way they're made. That's the way they are. They need to do that in order to live and thrive. But if you're able to learn to do that, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that happens is they get comfortable. Like, peaceful. Um, and you can see that. So I put some words that I think are, are bundled into that word peace. Peace, safety, trust, faithful, comfortable, accepted, enough, and others, uh, and others that appear to be different words addressing the same necessary experience for growth and development of living things, especially human persons. What a long sentence. We need relationship, togetherness, deep connected, safe, peace, comfortable, accepted, Relationships are essential. <clears throat> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You've heard that before. And we're not going to go all into what's the image of God. I'm just going to say the image of God has something to do with being fully human. In creating distinction, he created... Uh, male and female, he created them. Um, God also created healthy interdependency, which is at the heart of being human. He created the need for relationships, which is at the heart of being human. Without the distinction, connection becomes assimilation. I'm not a big Star Trek fan, but I think I saw an episode of The Borg, right? Yep. That's where the word came from, actually. Without distinction, connection becomes assimilation. The individuals disappear. Without for the other connection, distinction becomes oppositional. Rather than we're for each other. Togetherness is essential. The theologians say persons are constituted in relationship, but constituted as a single word is misleading at the same time it's informing. Humans are born human. They're not made human after the fact. Yet relationships are established by God to be formative of the person. Persons are constituted, grown, developed, revealed, enhanced, and more in relationships. So Walt Whitman said, we were together. I forget the rest. Now that, most people that I share that quote with pause, kind of like you all did, and then there's some audible reaction to that, response to that. There's just some truth there that Whitman was, it's always the poets or the songwriters, um, got a hold of it. Now, there may be some, though, that are puzzled by it. And that would have something to do with, we don't live in a world that supports this kind of thinking, that our relationships are essential to becoming more fully human, which is what makes one of the things that makes togetherness hard. Since the fall, Persons are also unmade, stunted, underdeveloped, concealed, limited, and more in relationships. Since the fall, the best and most important relationships are tainted with both the good stuff and the not good. 
relationships are experienced as inconsistently or episodically safe or not safe at all. Personal relationship histories are the seedbeds for defenses. Those defenses protect the heart and mind. And they help people survive. But those defenses also constrict by limiting togetherness, limiting our relationships. They limit further a fuller expression of humanness, and they close the heart. Yes? Um, appreciate the question. The question was, can I elaborate on specifically what some of the defenses are? I'll use myself as an example because that's the best one, and I kind of think I'm like Walter Mitty, if you have any idea who that is, who's, you know, just like everybody else, but it's totally not true. But um, in this way, probably so. Um, when I was a five-year-old child, my father died. I'm told by my older brothers, particularly oldest brother, that he was the nurturing parent, the more nurturing parent. And I understand that because in the aftermath of my father's death, my mom really couldn't be present emotionally. Now, she, my mom was a good woman. So it's not like she wasn't evil, she wasn't abusive, she wasn't ignoring us. And she did amazing things, raising three kids in the 1950s and 60s, all of them to go on to college and graduate school and all kinds of things. Um, as a single mom, when there wasn't a lot of help for single moms. Um, but as a result of my experiencing my father's death as an abandonment and my experiencing my mother's distance as another abandonment um, was frightening. I've, I've lost safety, peace, comfort. I'm not sure anybody sees me. Now, I didn't know any of that when I was five years old, but I knew it. And so somehow you account for that. Now, the psychologists put labels on it, which sometimes can be misleading. Um, one that I like a lot, calls it chronic shame. But that chronic shame is this great big bucket of the, of the things that we do to protect our heart. Um, so I separated, I pushed all the, I dissociated from, from all that painful stuff. And I, I became something of what I call a watcher. As a kid, I, you know, I'm watching and, and had some inherent abilities to see what was going on, but no one to talk to about it. And that's what makes it traumatic when there's no one. It's not the event so much as the absence of anyone that really help you talk about it. Yeah. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. So persons seek fuller humanness outside relational context. Everybody in my family was a, an athlete. That's one of the ways, for me anyway, that I see, uh, see fuller humanness, relationships, recognition, interchange with people, some level of uh, togetherness. Um, in, but this is contrary to God's created and ordered structure. His created and ordered structure is he created you male and female to be in relationships. And, and made it, to make it clear, it's not good for the man to be alone, or the woman. So persons seek fulfillment in ways they can control, are guaranteed, and then have a clear path. The culture of at least Western nations supports this, you are the captain of your own ship pursuit of human fullness. There's one major problem, it cannot work. But we somehow believe that it does work and this is a tragic trend that leads to tragic ends. So many are living below or far below their humanness. And yet we're supporting each other in the ways that we're pursuing that 
um, Fuller Jimenez. Bill Barnes again. He says you're really, uh, I shifted to togetherness is renewable, you're really working more in yourself than you are the horse. And that's a real art. So we're talking about togetherness and really trying to talk about it in all of our relationships. Um, but it's, it's going to be true for me as a counselor when I'm working with people. It's true for me as a teacher when I'm teaching and when I'm meeting with students. It's true for me with my wife. It's true, true for me with my two adult girls. It's true for me with the horses. It's true for me with the puppies. It's true all the time. Um, and it is an art. There's not a great science to it, uh, especially if we just stay with the science. Restoring togetherness begins with a look inside for us. And the key thing is slow the defenses and calm the fears. I understand now, 64 years later, that the five-year-old Dan was really afraid. And the main way that I handled that fear was internal by separating from it and living my life as if it had no influence, it didn't exist. And I became pretty convinced of that. Um, I always knew I wasn't afraid, uh, uh, you know, a kid that would say, oh, I'm not afraid of anything, you know, like, because I didn't like to climb trees, you know. I didn't like heights. I mean, there were things that I was afraid of that I'd say, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. But in terms of just the stuff of living, I didn't, I didn't know it. I couldn't access what I actually was feeling. And that's why I say to slow the defenses down. My defense was to separate from it and push it down. Um, and by that particular defense, but really all of them, I became a blind person to what was actually happening in myself. So it's very challenging as the defenses and the fears have been under the radar for a lifetime. Dan Weil says, who was a counselor here, he died just a little bit over a year ago, who lived here in California, Berkeley, I think. Intimacy is just a sentence away, but it's hard to find the sentence. Now, Dan Weil was a, um, uh, I think, the best, maybe one of the top two uh, marriage counselors of my generation. He's a little older, but... Um, Amazing and humble man. Um, so one of the things Wild helps us with is there's a choice that's important. Uh, a choice that we make in important relationship moments is, I've narrowed it down to two. Will you react out of defenses? And those defenses are in two main categories. Uh, fight, flight, or defend, attack. And, or, and withdrawal is also part of... Um, Withdraws the flight piece, defend attack is the fight piece. Or will you share what is happening in your heart with the other person when it is happening? Your choice invites, it is not automatic or mechanical. It doesn't work like that. But it invites a similar choice or a congruent choice, a fitting choice from the other person. If you attack, you're inviting attack or withdraw, either one. You're not inviting confiding. If you withdraw, you're inviting withdrawing or attacking. You're not inviting confiding. If you confide, you're inviting confiding. It doesn't mean they'll go that route, but it increases the likelihood. The obvious problems in relationships are not the problems to solve. What is needed is to solve the moment. If you want to get more on this, Dan Weil, title of a book, uh, Solving the Moment is the title. There is power in working together to reveal what needs to be confided on each party's part. So the relationship, the conversation in the relationship just shifted here 
if we're working number two, to helping each other slow the defenses down, take a look inside, and share it. Versus what do we tend to do? I've been a marriage counselor for a long time, and just about every couple I've ever worked with, um, well, probably every couple I've ever worked with at one time or another, when they come in, one of them at least, and it might be both, but one of them is convinced that my job is to change the other one. Every time. They are kind of blind to the real thing is solving the moments like working with the space that's in between, not working on, you could only work on yourself, you can't work on the other person. Um, so you work on yourself in order together you can work in the space in between. <clears throat> There's power in working together to hear the other first rather than what do we all do? Try to be heard first. Um, otherwise, one or both will feel too unheard to hear. That's actually a, not a, a direct quote from Dan Wilde, but that vocabulary is from Dan Wilde. Too unheard to hear. If you just think for a moment about relationship you have where you have a sense that there could be more understanding, more connection. Um, it may be, if you just think for a moment, that you realize, I don't feel like that other person's hearing me. So then ask yourself, are you hearing them? Because of the defenses that have been nurtured through a lifetime, what I just said is simple to understand. It's very difficult to do, just because you decide I'm going to do it differently. Um, in these moments where we're taking a look inside, uh, we shouldn't be doing that alone. And what I mean by that is, um, that's an isolated kind of act in the beginning there. But trust the Spirit to open your eyes as you do that work. The power of together helps us risk facing um, our fear and unconcealing it. It takes an open heart to open a heart. This semester, I've been, uh, I am teaching an elective class. It's advanced marriage and family counseling. Small group of uh, really special students as it has worked out. About 10 students in this conversation for the last three months. One of the books they read is Solving the Moment. And the last two weeks, the last four classes, we have been talking about how can you capture the few things that you want to take from this course to remember to impact your work with people and your lives. And we've been having that conversation and they've been helping we, me with my own understanding of that. And this is what I shared with them on Tuesday. The whole thing, this is it in one sentence, the whole thing is everything I know. It's in some way, it's the end of the journey for me. I don't know how, how that works yet, um, but that's what it feels like at this moment. It takes an open heart to open a heart. Part of that is because so much of the last decade especially, my whole life, but so much of the last decade has been God tapping me on the shoulder. I didn't know he was saying this, but his intervention, his entering into my life in subtle ways. And it's all been about it's okay. You don't have to keep separating from it. The betrayal of very dear people to me was a big part of that good thing of, in a deeper way than ever before, 
just sitting in the pain and getting desperate enough to depend on our good father, God our good father, who's not someone I've defended, depended on because he might be like my dad. He's going to go away, especially if he gets to know me. That's what abandonment feels like. So this is for me. Dan, if you're going to help people open their hearts, you have to let yours be open. But it's also for me as husband with my wife. And as that happens, slowly, this is such a slow walk, at least for me, as that happens, it's this odd thing of togetherness happens, which means as I'm able to stop defending so much, and stop being so rational that my, I think my, the most important thing is to convince Carol Ann that I'm right. And she's over there just feeling terribly unheard. And then I get so frustrated because she won't listen to me. But I'm making it very difficult, if not impossible, to listen to me because I'm still a scared little boy inside that God's trying to grow up now I'm 69 years old I kind of wish he'd I was going to say that he'd started sooner and it's like no, no that's foolish he started when I was born actually but what I'm discovering is right now in the last two or three years and I cannot explain it I can't tell you what's different I'm going to say the character of it's different, but I can't tell you what I'm doing that's different. I don't think I'm doing anything that's different. I think if Kelly talked to students I have currently, they would probably say, that sounds about like the same guy. But somehow, in these last two or three years, um, as this happens a little bit more in the classroom, that's happening in ways I haven't seen. And uh, my classroom's something like people loving each other well. And we're really connected in a way that I never thought me of all people could do. That's my way of saying the end. Um, <laughs> I invite you to take that email, questions, things. We'll, we have some minutes to talk. But, um, and I'll stay as long as you want to stay. But, um, yeah, send me an email, and eventually I'll get back to you. <laughs> I, I promise I will, eventually. Thoughts, questions, clarifications, musings. the first half of your question because I got thinking and I missed the second half uh, the last phrase or last third um, do I feel like the trauma that I experienced when I was young that I needed some help with that trauma um, I, I'll say yes for now but that needs to be talked about some more. and then the rest of your question the end of it So have I found that working through it, to some extent, I mean, it, it's, it's a road. I mean, it's a journey. Um, I read a quote the other day that was, um, uh, I don't have it quite right, Ian McGilchrist 
said something like, the journey matters because it is the arrival. And so often we think in terms of we're working through in order to get here. And I think of it more as, um, I, I don't even like the, I love what he said, what he wrote, um, but I don't like the finality of it that we might put on it that he probably isn't. Um, that it's moving in the direction. Kind of like what Dan Wiles says when he says solving the moment. It's not so much about um, we fight all the time. Dan Wiles would say the problem is that you can't have conversation about the fighting. But I strayed a little bit from your question. To go back to, to the first piece, that I need help. Um, and I said yes. Um, I have had very little counseling around that. There, I did have a counselor, this was probably 15 years ago, um, at a particular point in time where things were coming to a head. Um, but I had lots and lots of help. I just didn't know it. And that's part of the surprising piece. And one of the biggest helps for me, um, we're singer-songwriters. Yeah. Particularly in those times of loss, more loss, the pain of that. And, you know, I'm, I'm taken down by the pain. I've lived depressed a lot of years in my life, um, at months and months at a time. Um, but the depression wasn't really what needed to be solved. One of those singers is Jackson Brown, by the way. There's a, a line in one of his songs that's running on empty, if you know that song. Um, he talks about when he was 16, running up, running down the 101. I've driven on that now, you know, since I got the 101. I was like, hey, this is cool. Where's Jackson? Um, but I want to combine with that a definition of trauma from Bonnie Badenoch and her book, The Heart of Trauma. And what she does so well, I'm not going to have the wording exactly right. She says it better. But what she talks about is the trauma is not so much the event. Now, the event counts, but that's not what we really need to solve. I just put wild language with, with Bade and I. I confuse people all the time. Um, what Bade, uh, Bonnie Badenock defines the things that become very traumatic as the, the things that were experienced where there wasn't anybody to have conversation with them about that. She explains it this way, using some good brain science. If um, when you experience something difficult, you feel it in your body, which, you know, we're one whole thing, but you feel it in your body. To be fully human, you need conversation so, so, to, so that um, those experiences can have words put to them so they can get encoded in your brain. What difference would that make? Let's say years later, you have a similar experience. That's not right. It's not the similarity in the experience. You have an experience that creates a similar feeling. If you did not have that kind of working with you to encode it, you tend to experience this current situation as if it's the other one simultaneously. It's not going back in time as much as it's time, the past, invading your present moment. And so you feel it. But you can't do anything with it. You can't really say, oh, this is really about. Now, you can do that work retroactively. PTSD is about trauma that has not been able to be encoded. Now, it's, it's more complicated than that, but I'm 
that's a pretty good summary. So yes, I needed that work to bring up the things that I had stuffed down so effectively in order to encode them, process them, so that as I move through life, <coughs> I can look at the experiences that feel like those similar, those previous experiences, and recognize, yeah, I see the connection, um, but the connection's not that it's the same thing happening. The connection is how I experience it, and I can do something different with it now. A very important other person for me. Um, you didn't know you were going to get so much out of one question, did you? <laughs> is a, a friend of mine, um, pastor in the denomination I am now in, and, and another, um, was living in Alabama. He came back to St. Louis because of his wife's parents' uh, failing health. And he got a hold of me, and he let me know that he was uh, starting, or in the process, it just started, a um, training program to become a spiritual director that was being done by Gordon Conwell Seminary in whichever Carolina that is. I can't tell the difference. I grew up in Massachusetts, so yeah, down there. Um, and he asked me if I'd be one of his, in, you know, guinea pigs in his part of the internship type thing. That is not something I would want to do, but he was my friend and I'm not very um, assertive. So I said yes. <laughs> One of the best choices I've made, if, I, if that really was a choice. Um, and the very first day, I don't always talk about these specifics, but the very first day, we were at my house. Uh, Carol Ann and I have the remnants of a very old farm. House was built before the Civil War. And um, just five acres with half of it is pasture for the horses. And my friend Corb and I are sitting out in some Adirondack chairs, just up maybe about 15 feet from the pasture fence right over there. Um, and in the beginning, we had had some time of silence, and then Corb was asking questions this particular day. And one of the questions he asked me in, in this string was, can you see, can you imagine God being like the father of the prodigal son, running to you to welcome you? I got stuck on that question. I think he went on. I don't know what else, because I, I, I wasn't surprised that the answer was, no, I can't see that. Um, I was surprised at how adamant I was. Sometimes, a few times that I've told this story, sometimes I try to make it clear how adamant and I pound on the table, but I'm concerned that this recorder that I just bumped, um, you know, might fall to the floor. I was just like, no, and I won't. No way. Don't ask that of me. I had worked through abandonment issues that have helped in my relationship with Carol Ann. And in the past, if there was something I'd forgotten to do and she asked me about it again, I'd get mad at her, you know? Because it was like, oh, she caught me. I didn't know what was going on. But it's like, oh, she's gonna go away now, too. <laughs> and we'd worked, I thought I'd worked through all that. Well, I had a little bit. But as I'm sitting there out in our front yard, I'm realizing, yeah, not with God. So that same day, at the, um, in the middle of our time, uh, uh, Corbin and I talked about that a little bit, and then it was like, well, let's pray about this. And he prayed, I prayed, and I prayed. And, and after we stopped praying, I looked up and there was this uh, dove. Looks like a pigeon, but it's not the same color as city pigeons anyway, at least that I see in Boston. It was uh, light brown, morning dove, actually. 
sitting on the fence. I asked Corb, how long has that bird been sitting there? He hadn't noticed. Uh, so we talked for maybe another 20 or 25 or 30 minutes, and the bird just stayed there. We got up. We're not very far from the bird. He just stayed there. Well, most of the time, he's watching us. He's kind of, really. Of course, Corb did his spiritual director duty and, you know, talked about, well, you know the dove in the Bible. Yeah, I know Corb. Um, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we parted. I went in the house, got ready to go into the school. And as I came out, the bird's still sitting on the fence. Drove away, and because of some other stories I'd heard about animals that would hang around farms, um, kind of adopt you. And I just sort of wondered, I wonder if it'll be there when I get home. Seven, eight, nine hours later, there it was. It had moved a little bit, still in the same section of the fence. I don't know if it had left and came back, or it just kind of stayed there that day. So I pulled around our barn, the driveway, hit there, uh, hit the, stopped at the end of the driveway, looked at the uh, that bird again, and I laughed. But that laugh of, I give up, laugh. I get it, God. You've never gone anywhere. That was just the beginning, but it also was a jump start. And uh, so even though I haven't had just that one brief official counseling, there have been so many. Some of it's drive-by counseling. Um, some of it's like with my friend Corb that just continues and probably will for the rest of our lives. Um, because God's a good father. And he's a good counselor. Doesn't mean he wants to do it all alone. Because there, there, there needs to be people, ultimately. Because that's the full human experience. Wasn't that long ago I didn't know it. I couldn't say God's a good father. Couldn't really say God's my father. He changed that. Which has something to do with my counseling and my teachings changing. And what I experience when I visit with Kel, like we did last night with Adam at dinner, is, oh, I actually feel stuff that I know I, know I feel. Now I can actually feel it a little bit. Praise God. Other questions? I've gone long. Yep. Just in terms of when we're the person who's dealing with an individual who has that kind of trauma, because I'm dealing with an in-law who has like severe family abandonment, right? And our family yeah. operates like totally different, and we're dealing with a situation that makes it like even harder. Like, what is a, like, good approach? Because I know that we now have found ourselves in, like, eh, right? So how do, how do we, like, kind of, like, step back and, like, it's, sim it's not simple. It's complicated, like, what we're dealing mm -hmm. with. But, exactly. like, what is an approach for us to kind of help this situation? Because I, I can, intellectually, I even can, like, have a part to her. The situation makes it like, oh, I don't want to deal with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to summarize that question for the um, recording, I'll do it very briefly and then you let me know if I need to add something. What do we do in those situations? It might be family, but it could be other situations. It could be work. It could be uh, other groups that we're in. Where we have this person that's, anybody with common sense would say, they make it worse. They're the problem, in a sense. They're really struggling, and we've tried everything, and what, anything that we do, it makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't help. So what else could we do? Something like that? Yeah. I think the first thing, you need to know, yeah, I've been praying for an answer to your question, because um, it is complicated. I think the first thing is something like you, you, you named it, step back. How do we step back? Yeah, that's right, you step back. Um, which is, if I could make the slides move backwards, we might go there, but we won't take the time. 
um, something of slowing down our defenses and pay attention to our fears actually comes into play. Um, one of the, a sort of defense that we have is we want to make things better. We want to fix it. We want to find the right thing to do. And you probably can't find the right thing. It's something like Deuteronomy 6, that it's a process as you walk down the road. And in the process of walking down the road, you actually discover, you hear the whispering of God in your ear, or you come up with ideas and you try it. But there's another piece where it's, um, you can confide with that person how difficult it is for you to not be able to understand or connect. Now, here's the qualifier. It's not mechanical. It may not make, it may not make that much difference. But ultimately, it's in God's hands. But I believe that he is at, he is at work, even in the failures. Like my friends that betrayed them. God was right in the middle of that. I don't even want to agree with that statement. <coughs> and that's part of the beauty of it. Even though it still hurts. Some things will not be repaired in this part of the story. Some things will only be repaired when we look Jesus in the eyes and look God in the eyes. I wish I had a, a better no, answer. Thank you. How can you be a, a mover and shaker in that? But uh, we just have to approach it pretty humbly. Well, I have gone well over my time. Yes. Thank you so much, Dan, for Welcome. sharing with us so openly. I wish I could sit for another hour and a half. <laughs> and thank you all for being here um, at the Boone Center for the Family lecture this morning. If you would like to learn more about the Boone Center and our programs, you're welcome to complete a sign-up card at the table. Thank you.